Bruce, what is an impact? Is it sometimes called an effect? That's right. Uh, according to various legislation, the uh, things that happen in the environment, whether they be positive or negative, are we usually refer to as an impact, but it can also be called an effect. And in this uh, podcast and in the course, I'm going to use them interchangeably, effect and impact. So it's safe to say they're synonyms. They mean the same thing. That's right. So the change is caused by something. Usually it's a human activity. And the change can be positive or negative. So when we go to express an impact, tell someone about an impact, I like to use two things. First of all, what was it that changed in the environment? Was it the fish, the moose, the plants, or whatever? And secondly, what caused the change, if we actually know that? So was it a contamination? Was, was it uh, the result of some uh, development, or what was it? So to give an example of a negative impact or an adverse impact, something that does harm to the environment, we could say, like, damage to fish habitat resulting from construction activities near a stream. So when I expressed that, that impact, I indicated that the damage was to fish habitat and resulted from uh, construction activities near the stream. Another one might be loss of moose habitat resulting from timber harvesting or lowering of water table of groundwater due to construction of a gravel pit or increased noise and disturbance to residential areas due to operation of a waste management site, in, like in the last example. So, so when you say waste management site, and I know you used the, the, an example uh, in podcast 1A, uh, re really you mean a garbage dump, do you? Well, that's right. I, we, uh, anyone who's worked in waste management wants to be careful about using the words dump or landfill. So uh, when I refer to a waste dump, that just means a hole in the ground where people throw the waste. But uh, a sanitary landfill facility would involve a, a controlled landfill, that is one that, where the waste is covered at uh, frequent intervals and uh, has security and maybe even has recycling facilities like we see in many communities. That, that, that's, that's an excellent distinction. I guess it's safe to say that uh, as people, whether we're individuals or families or communities, we produce waste. That's, that's inevitable. That's right. And so the question is how we manage it. Is that, that, is that safe right. to say? Yes. So all these uh, examples you've given us now, three or four to do with fish habitat and moose habitat and whatnot, are negative. Uh, I presume that there can be uh, positive uh, examples as well? That's right. And often positive and negative or adverse and beneficial impacts can result from the same project. So let's go back to the example of the waste management facility. Let's suppose that it has a, a, an actual landfill and some recycling stations. We're going to have a lot of benefits from that in the environment. We're going to have better air quality, fewer pests, less disease, and better surface water and groundwater quality because there's less waste seeping out of, of the pile and into the groundwater. So we're protecting a lot of things. We're getting a lot of benefits environmentally. But at the same time, the waste management facility will take up space, take up land that could be otherwise used for agriculture. It also has a financial cost, which has to be balanced with the environmental benefits. And there may be air pollution from, from trucks 
uh, through the emissions. It may need an access road and it may need power and security. So often the positive and negative impacts of a single project have to be weighed out against each other. You, you've probably heard the, the cliche or the truism that birds build nests and people build communities. It, uh, communities are, are inevitable. What we have to be conscious of is the effects or impacts of, of these communities and this development. Is that's, that safe to say? Yes, that's right. The effects on people, and especially with new legislation for environmental assessment at the federal level, we're more and more apt to include effects on people or the community, that is socioeconomic effects, within the environmental impact assessment. So for example, damage to fish habitat resulting from construction may result in the loss of food supply or fishing income to a community. Soil erosion from oil wells and pipeline developments can result in the loss of agricultural production. And groundwater contamination from an underground tank can result in the loss of a water source for a community. They may have to go out and buy it uh, for the period in which the contamination exists. So all of these impacts, socioeconomic impacts, should be considered in an environmental impact assessment. I think that's a point well worth stressing, that the environment is not simply the biophysical environment. It's not simply soil and water and trees and air and so on. It's also the, uh, the human environment, the socioeconomic environment, and the examples you've given are, are excellent. Loss of food supply, loss of income, loss of water sources. So far, we've been talking about uh, impacts and effects and assessments uh, somewhat uh, in, the, in the abstract or the, the hypothetical. Could you give us a, a real real life example? I know you've worked in many parts of the country, uh, many parts of the world rather, including uh, South America. What about some uh, primary and secondary impacts from a, a project that, that you've worked on? Yeah, uh, I have a good example, I think, from a project I did about seven years ago in northeastern Brazil. And the project was a major highway, about 120 kilometers long, from the coast, from a large city, into a mainly agricultural uh, lands and several small town centers. So the job was to study the environmental, the potential environmental impact from the highway development. When I arrived there, I found that the government had already done a lot of work and in fact an environmental impact assessment, which was, to my eyes, was quite complete and thorough. So it predicted impacts on the surrounding lands and watercourses and air and it proposed measures to be put in place to avoid or minimize these impacts. So I read through the EIA, the Environmental Impact Assessment, and it seemed quite complete. The measures that they proposed for protecting air and water and soil seemed pretty sound through the various stages of construction. So then I asked my small team of Brazilian consultants if we could go and take a look at the project, because the other thing I found out was that the highway had already been built pretty well. So um, that was a, a bit of a surprise uh, to me, but... So, so just so I'm clear, they, they called you in and they wanted your expertise not before the highway was built, but afterwards. That, that's right, yeah. Hmm. It was a bureaucratic error <laughs> at headquarters. But uh, anyway, uh, I asked to go out and visit the highway. And apart from some fairly biophysical things like watercourse crossings and erosion, things like that, it seemed that they had done a pretty good job. 
on uh, protecting the environment from this multi-lane highway to go into a mainly rural area. So, so at that point, you had focused on the biophysical environment. That's right. And I guess at that point, it was time to look at the sociocultural environment? Yeah, and it's something I hadn't really thought about very much until we visited one of the towns along the way. And we interviewed the town manager. And we asked him what he saw as the potential effects of this large highway going through his area. And he told us that the increased access by this highway would result in the population rising by about two or three times hmm. in the next decade or so. We began to think about things like how much sewage would be generated, how much pressure would there be on natural resources. And so we asked to go out and see some of these, the infrastructure. We saw the sewage treatment plant and already the, the sewage, because it was the machine was broken, was bypassing the treatment system and going directly into the river, a river which was used for fishing and bathing by the people in the town. We then went and visited a brick factory and uh, the operator there too told us the population for the increased need for housing would at least double in the next decade and therefore the demand for bricks to make houses would skyrocket. Mm -hmm. So we toured the facility and we learned that they required two main resources for making bricks. Number one, the clay, which they got from the river, and the firewood, which they got from an area of land adjacent to the brick factory. So we toured both, and what we saw at the river were uh, a team of men digging out clay from the banks of the river, causing a lot of erosion and uh, decline in water quality. And then we went out and looked at the site next to the, the brick factory where they were gathering firewood to heat the enormous ovens to bake the clay bricks. And what we looked at was basically a moonscape. The uh, trees had pretty well all been taken down and used for firewood. And the operator told me that they were awaiting a visit from the environmental office the next day, and he was very nervous. So this was quite a revelation to me. And it made me think that often what we looked at in the EIA is the, what we call the biophysical effects, so air, water, soil, uh, and even vegetation and wildlife, which I would call primary environmental impacts. But there are things that you could call secondary environmental impacts, which re result in some change in human population or access uh, to an area, which will in turn result in a number of adverse environmental impacts. In fact, some of the secondary impacts, in some cases, can be a lot more serious and longer lasting than the primary effects, as well as being harder to resolve over the long term. So it's a, it's a brilliant example, and it illustrates that the, I'm guessing that the primary effects uh, are often more obvious. For instance, you looked at the effect uh, on erosion from the, the bridges and the highway itself, but the secondary effects, the secondary impacts, also erosion from mining the clay are less obvious and require a, a bit more diligence and a bit more research. That's right, exactly. And then in the later part of my career, I began looking for secondary impacts as well as primary impacts. And in a lot of cases, that's exactly what I found. I, I think what we've chatted about today, and in particular, as illustrated by your example, is just how complex the environment is. Uh, and the complexity really is a shows the interconnectedness between things. So who would have thought, for instance, that building a highway 
into rural Brazil would have an effect on firewood and clay and, and other secondary effects. And let's conclude this, this podcast, which is 1B, by just a brief reference to a piece of federal legislation, the Impact Assessment Act. So this is legislation passed by Canada, by the federal government, uh, out of Ottawa. And I, I want to uh, just ask Bruce a, a couple of questions about the factors, how factors are defined. This is section 22 of the Act. But in particular, uh, subsections L and M, which look at indigenous uh, cultures and community knowledge. So Bruce, could you conclude, could you wrap it up just by uh, chatting about those two things? Yeah, in the new Impact Assessment Act, which has come in just in recent years, there are several sections that relate to that. So section L of the Impact Assessment Act refers to considerations related to indigenous cultures, which are raised with respect to the designated project. Section M refers to community knowledge provided with respect to the designated project. And these are all things that the Act is saying should be considered in an impact assessment. I think that wraps up uh, Podcast 1B brilliantly. Uh, Stay tuned for Podcast 2 on public consultation. Mm